chapter 8, and uh, the song Faith sang just now, especially the first verse, was particularly ties well with this, as it describes attributes of who Jesus is. Uh, and I don't know if you've noticed, but today, this day and age, there's a lot of misinformation about who Jesus is. I hate even to use the word misinformation anymore, but there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of debate over who Jesus is. So, in John chapter 8, we're going to pick up at verse 31, and we're going to look uh, all the way to 59. It's a lengthy, lengthy passage here today. Uh, but it's where Jesus examines who he is himself, and he does it in front of other people. You know, uh, we'll do the same as what we did. Uh, it worked so well last Sunday. Uh, we just worked through, instead of reading the whole passage, right up front. We worked our way right through it just a little bit at a time. So I want to do the same today for time purposes. So now that we know where we're going uh, and we know what we're going to be talking about, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get to looking at this. Lord, we do thank you for another beautiful day. If you gave us another day, you've got work for us to do. Please make that work clear to us so we know exactly what we need to do. Help us to be able to lift your name up among the heathen. This world doesn't know you. Jake and I were talking this morning about how you promised that things were going to become like the days of Noah when there were only eight believers. Boy, it seems like we're getting closer and closer to that. Help us to share this gospel of who you are as we go out into this world this week. Guide us through your word this morning. Show us what you'd have for us. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. So as I say, uh, there's a lot of dis debate as to who Jesus is. Uh, some folks say he was a flim-flam man. Uh, some people say he was a great teacher. Uh, other people say he wasn't even a real person at all, that he was just a compilation of ideas. Uh, John the Baptist said he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You and I as Christians, we claim him as our Savior. Sometimes we don't even know what that means, but that's what we claim. In John chapter 8, Jesus makes some very profound statements about himself. But he did it in the context of talking about the families of mankind. Uh, and you, we could break today's sermon up very easily into three sections. In fact, I think that's what we're going to do. Uh, you've got verses uh, 31 to 41, where Jesus speaks about the sons of Abraham. The sons of Abraham, that's the Jews. In verses uh, 42 to 47, he speaks about the sons of the devil. And in verses 48 to 59, he speaks of himself as the son of the father. The Son of the Father. If you want a three-point outline, that's it right there. So, even when Jesus was still on the earth, still on the earth, he was alive right there in front of people, there was still confusion around exactly who he was. Can you believe that? And if you and I are going to claim to follow him, and we claim as Christians to follow him, right? A couple of you do. All right. Uh, if we claim to follow him, we ought to understand who he claimed to be from his own words, right? Just stands to reason, right? So let's look at verse 31. 
John chapter 8, verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Right off the bat, let's notice who Jesus is talking to in this situation. He's talking to those Jews who believed on him. He had some disciples. More than just the twelve, he had some disciples around him. Apparently there were some Jews who paid attention to what he said, paid attention to his words, perhaps without committing themselves to him personally maybe, but they believed on, on him. We see another group that, like in John chapter 6, after Jesus makes some hard statements and a lot of the crowd left him, and even the disciples started murmuring amongst themselves, go ahead and look back at John chapter 6 uh, later on. And you see that all that happened. Some of them left. Even his disciples started murmuring amongst themselves. And Jesus turned to them and says, Are you guys going to leave too? You guys going to leave too? And they probably had a pretty shallow belief. And perhaps here, Jesus is trying to deepen that belief a little bit. All right, you say you believe? Let's, let's, let's really examine what do you believe. That's what Jesus is trying to do here. We'll see when we get to the end of this uh, that Jesus' teaching met with a lot of resistance. That, and that's understatement. We're going to see that when we get all the way down to 59. You'll see the kind of resistance that Jesus met with at this statement that we're looking at today. This is a very, in a world of division, this is a divisive sermon this morning. This is, gonna, this is a line in the sand. What, do, what side are you on on this? You know, folks haven't changed that much in this world, have they? I, I said that earlier. I'm saying it right now. Folks haven't changed that much. People look at it and they say, oh, you know, there was in the old uh, classic rock song, that Jesus is just all right with me, you know. Uh, and nowadays we've got a different expression coming along you know, that I've been hearing in the last couple of weeks about talking about extreme Christianity. We don't want that. You don't want to be an extreme Christian. Let's not get carried away. We see that every day, don't we? These opposite views. Did you know that it's possible to believe the message of repentance and salvation and still not be born again? That's who Jesus is talking to right now. Continuing in the truth, continuing in the truth of this word is the sign of a true follower and a true disciple. We're going to see Jesus say in the next verse that if they really grasp what he was saying, they're going to find salvation truth. And making this truth a part of their lives, you and me making this a part of our lives, is going to free them from their bondage to sin. Let's look at the 32, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I don't want to say that those words are carved in granite in our uh, Central Intelligence Headquarters in Quantico, Virginia. Uh, we seem to have left that now, but uh, in, carved in the granite, and they've got, uh, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Uh, anyway, this verse has three major concepts going on. I don't know if you picked up on them. It says knowledge, it says truth, and it talks about freedom. Three very important concepts. The word to know is from the Greek word gnosko. Shows up 56 times in the Gospel of John. John's always talking about 
I'm telling you this so that you may know, so that you may know, so that you may know. It's very important to know something. It refers to knowledge that's based on experience. That's what gnosko means. I know that this is true because I've seen it with my own eyes. Truth, the other concept here, means a reality that's become revealed. A reality that's become revealed. It always was a reality, whether you realize it or not. It's a reality. John almost always uses truth in a reference to Jesus himself. Did you know that? As you look at the, the, all the books of John, the Gospel of John and the three epistles of John, John almost always uses truth to refer to Jesus himself. And free, freedom, that's, another, that's an unusual word for John. In fact, John only uses it a couple of times. He uses it here. He uses it in verse 33, and he uses it in verse 36. We're going to look at all three instances today of John using freedom. Now, Paul uses that concept a lot, but John only uses it in today's passage. Freedom. What does freedom mean? Somebody help me out here. What does freedom mean? That's certainly an aspect of it, sure. To not be bound. That's a, that's a good... Yeah, uh, that's more where I was going. We're talking in a general sense. I mean, Derek's absolutely right. Ultimate freedom is freedom from sin, for certain. But I'm trying to think in general terms here. Freedom is a lack of restraint, lack of bound. I I like that, not being bound. No restrictions. Uh, An opportunity to act, to move, without any interference. That's freedom. So putting this all together... Jesus is saying that knowledge of the truth as seen in his person, remember truth means his person to John, will bring about the ability to live life without any restrictions from outside influences. What's going on in the world today will no longer restrain you. Wouldn't that be a relief? The gospel will have set you free. Isn't that wonderful news? Well, Jesus' heroes didn't seem to think so. We'll see that as we go along through. Speaking of going along through, let's go to 33. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Isn't that an unusual statement there? These folks were Jews. These folks are Jews. We already saw that in 31. They're subjects to Rome. They used to have their own nation. They have been taken over. They are a subject nation to Rome. How can they possibly say that they are free? What they're saying doesn't even make sense, even on the surface. Even in a superficial way of looking at it, it doesn't make sense. And yet they still ask, how can Jesus free them if they're not slaves. Well, they are slaves. See, they have no concept. They, they have no concept of what Derek was just talking about. The bondage to sin. And by the way, neither do most folks today. Most folks today have no concept of bondage to sin. That was right on the forefront of Derek's mind. I mean, he grabbed it right off the bat because he's a good God-fearing Christian. But The rest of the world doesn't have that concept on the forefront of their mind. 
And if these folks had really been believers in Jesus, they would have understood what he was saying. See, the true humility that comes from true faith would have accepted what Jesus said, but their own pride got in the way. What do you mean? We're not, we're not burdened by anybody. Well, by the way, yeah, you are. You are, well, look at you, you're subjects to Rome, for one thing. Uh, see, they had a wrong view of freedom. They said that because they were descended from Abraham, they were free. You see, the Jews believed, they still do believe, really, that they're the greatest race God ever made, and that's why God chose them. Uh, And that's why God's chosen to work with them. Now, God said the exact opposite to them all through the book of Deuteronomy. It's not because you were a great nation that I chose you. I chose you just because I chose you. But I don't want to teach that right now. Uh, They were also wrong when they said that they'd never been in bondage to any man. For one thing, they're in bondage to Rome right now. But uh, they conveniently seem to have forgotten their bondage in Egypt, right? We all know that they were in bondage in Egypt. They were in bondage in the times of the judges, right? We see the Philistines, the Canaanites, all these different groups of people, the Amorites, Adam and Javondage, the Babylonian captivity. That was bondage, if ever there was bondage. Uh, And we've already mentioned that they're under Rome's bondage as we speak. Did you know that pride will blind you to the truth? And that's the situation that they were in. They were so proud that they were blind to the truth, didn't even realize the reality of the situation they were in. Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Jesus comes right around to the concept that uh, Derek was just bringing up. The bondage Jesus is speaking of is much deeper, much more dangerous, and far worse than any political or economic slavery. Whoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. That's a profound statement right there. And it tells me that my slavery doesn't come from an outside source, does it? My slavery doesn't come from an outside source. It comes from within. Sin slavery is also progressive. One sin becomes the cause of other sins. You do one thing, you do it wrong, you know it was a sin, and then you have to lie to cover it up. Then you have to commit perjury on a court trial to cover up the lie that you... You see how it escalates? See, sin is more than a series of individual offenses. I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. Each of those, if that were the case, each of them can be pardoned. But rather, sin is more like a disease. Each outbreak is just a symptom of a sin virus that's inside. And it just keeps popping up with these various symptoms. I did this because I've got this virus deteriorating me on the inside. Each attack weakens the body more and more. Each attack becomes stronger and more violent until finally it kills you. Eventually, all your resistance breaks down, and death is going to be the result, unless you get a cure. Just like a sick man is a slave to his disease, so am I a slave to my sin nature, you see. 
And unless I'm cured, I'm doomed. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. Jesus gives us a glimmer of hope there. The slave doesn't stay in the house forever. Only the son will. The son remains in the house because he is the heir. Now, since we're talking in the context of Abraham, remember that's the context that we're talking in, I can't help but think of Ishmael, Abraham's son by Hagar, remember? Uh, He was cast out of the house, Genesis chapter 21. Go ahead and read that yourself. So, in keeping with that statement, the sinner is in very real danger of being kicked out of God's kingdom, isn't he? But Jesus here is claiming to be able to free men from their sin. And as we'll see, he's also able to give a state of sonship along with that freedom. Not only can he give you freedom from the sin, but he can make you a son too. And a son is an heir of the household. And he is forever If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Verse 36. Jesus, claiming to be the true Son, the true seed of Abraham, as Paul uh, described in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. we got time. Let's go there. Galatians 3.16. Here's what Paul had to say. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. There's no question there what the seed of Abraham is that we're talking about here. The promise came through Christ. Uh, he remains in the house. He is the ruler over it. And that's what Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6 says too. I don't, I'm not going to go there right now. We can become truly free. If the only way we can become truly free is by becoming sons of God by faith in Christ. That's the only way. I know that you're Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. Jesus acknowledges, yeah, I understand that you're Uh, descended from Abraham, your ancestry, you went on Ancestry.com, you followed it all the way back to Abraham, good work. I understand that. But he points out that they haven't followed in the faith of Abraham. They were sons of Abraham, and yet they're trying to kill Jesus, who is Abraham's true seed. We just finished reading that in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. Jesus is Abraham's true seed, singular, one trying to kill him. Isn't that ironic that the sons of Abraham are trying to kill Abraham's seed? They've rejected Jesus' message. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. Jesus said what he said in God's presence. His words are God's truth. But they didn't want to listen. 
because they would rather hear the words of their father, who we're going to see in just a few minutes is the devil. Jesus doesn't come quite out and say that just yet, but he's fixing to. He's just about to get around to saying that. So the Jews, obviously they argue with that again, uh, verse 39, that was a little bit offensive. Jesus wasn't afraid of saying offensive things. Uh, I mean, he didn't have a problem with, oh, I'm sorry that offended you, I, I thought you were an adult. Uh, you know, people could use a little bit more of that today. Uh, verse 39, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, if ye were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. The Jews argued again that, well, Abraham's our father. And Jesus responds, Abraham's sons ought to be doing what Abraham would do. And that, what is that? What would Abraham do? He would believe and he would obey God. That's what we saw throughout Abraham's life, right? God tells him to do this. Abraham God says, Abraham, I want you to pack up all your stuff. I want you to leave the land that you live in, and I want you to go someplace else. I'm not going to tell you where the place is. Abraham says, okay, God. And he does it for years. I mean, if that's not belief and obedience, I don't know what is. But he takes it even further. He says, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and I want you to kill him. Abraham says, okay, God. Abraham believed and obeyed God. Abraham's children ought to do the same thing. They should respond in faith to Jesus' message, and they ought to do what he says. John the Baptist had already given them a similar warning, Luke chapter 3 and verse 8. Let's take a look at that. We got time. John the Baptist had to say this. John the Baptist was another guy who didn't care about offending people. Ended up getting him killed. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. You know, our God can do that. He can do anything he wants to. That's one of the perks of being God. Back to John 8, verse 40. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Instead of listening, believing, and obeying, they rejected God's messenger. And they tried to kill the very one who brought them God's truth, God's word. Abraham didn't do that. He just obeyed God's commands. He didn't try to bring any truth necessarily to anybody. He just, God said to do something. Jesus is saying, I'm doing something even better. I'm, I'm expanding God's truth to you, and you still you're trying to kill me. I'm going above and beyond anything Abraham ever thought about doing. And you, Abraham's sons, want to kill me? You do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. The conclusion that Jesus comes to is that since the Jews' action is so different, their father must be different as well. You're not doing what Abraham would do. So your father must be something, somebody else. 
the only path that they have to take now is to deny their own illegitimate descent. So they do that, and it's pretty obvious to see they're making some uh, claims against Jesus' birth too. Well, we know who our father is. I don't want to get into the circumstances of Jesus' birth. You know that yourself. So Jesus says to them, verse 42, Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. So in case you didn't pick it up, we're entering the second point of the sermon, right? Pretty. I told you how this is laid out. We're entering the second part, really the climax of today's sermon. This is where we're going to spend most of our time, where Jesus makes the case that these Jews are children of the devil. And he uses the example of love. Isn't that interesting? Love is a family trait, right? Uh, you see that in uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. If the Jews really had God as their father, and they really loved him, then they should have loved Jesus as well, shouldn't they? Since he came from God. What Jesus is saying is that he represents God to mankind. He represents God to mankind. You want to see what God looks like? This is it. I'm his son right here. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Jesus is speaking to him, just like I'm speaking to you, but his message is being misunderstood. Cannot hear. It says cannot hear there. That literally means cannot respond, if you look that up. Now, it's very closely akin to what 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 15 says, that the natural man receiveth not, same, same term, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. And that's the fundamental problem. That's the reason that this world out here cannot understand what we're talking about in here. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now, those are, those are strong, that's strong medicine right there. Uh, the devil is the enemy of life and truth. Did you know that? We ought to realize that. He's the enemy of life and truth. And it was through a lie in the Garden of Eden that he brought death to mankind. And he still lies today. And he still tries to steer mankind away from the truth of God. Since the Jews wanted Jesus to be put to death, and since they rejected the truth, and since they embraced a lie, they sure seem to be taken after their old men, don't they? That's what Jesus is saying here. And that's very different than what Abraham would do, isn't it? We've already talked about how Abraham would, God says something, no matter how outlandish, God said some outlandish things to Abraham. 
God said some outlandish things to Abraham, and Abraham just said, sure, all right, that's how it's going to be? All right, let's do it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Jesus, in contrast to the Jews, lives in truth. He lives, he embodies truth. Remember, I said John always sees truth as Jesus himself. When he, is, when he writes truth, you can substitute that for Jesus right there. Jesus is truth. And he proclaims the truth of God openly. Since mankind prefers darkness to light and falsehood to reality, that's why mankind rejects Christ. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? At this point, there have been a lot of accusations made against Jesus. I don't want to back up and look at the whole life of Jesus and these different accusations that are made. But none of the accusations that have been made have been able to stick. If any of them had been able to stick, they would have crucified him by now. But none of the accusations have been able to stick. There was a reason for that. The reason why none of them could stick was he was so committed to doing God's will that it was impossible for there to be any connection between Jesus and sin. Jesus lived a purely virtuous life. Absolutely, purely virtuous. Nothing could stick. Jesus even challenges them here, go ahead, convict me if you can. If you can find one thing that'll stick, go ahead, fire away. Since he knows they can't, he then asks, why don't you believe me? You can't find anything against me. Why don't you believe me? I don't know about you, but I ask the same question every day when I look at this. Why can't you, world, see the truth that I've got right here? Well, Jesus is explaining why. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Belonging to God is critical to hearing Him. You will not hear Him if you don't belong to Him. To hear Him, again, doesn't necessarily mean to hear an audible sound with your ears. Rather, it means to be able to respond, to obey to His commandments. Remember, we talked about that when we went to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. Uh, when it says hearing, we're talking about responding to. And the proper response is to obey. Because the Jews were not responding to Jesus' commands, they clearly don't belong to God. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well, thou, say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Now we get to some of Jesus' claims about himself. The Jews are accusing him of being a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans were a mixed race, uh, and the Jews regarded their religion as apostate. Uh, to call Jesus a Samaritan 
is a racial slur, to use modern terminology. That's, that's what it is. It's hate speech, if you will. Uh, they're really calling Jesus a heretic at this point. Uh, they then call him demon-possessed. They thought he was mad. They thought he was unclean. They thought he was evil. They thought he was demon-possessed. I do see a bit of irony here that right after Jesus says that their father was the devil, they call him demon-possessed. It's kind of like kids on a playground saying, I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? I mean, that's exactly what they're doing. That's exactly what they're doing. Verse 49 and 50. Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me. And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. See, Jesus' claims aren't the kind of claims of a demoniac. A demoniac, if you, if you really pay attention, they're, they're a lot of times looking for self-recognition. And that's not what Jesus is doing. He's looking for the glory of his Father. And that's different entirely, isn't it? To attempt to discredit Jesus is an attack on God himself. Notice that Jesus makes no attempt to justify himself either. He doesn't make a single attempt to justify himself. He commits the case to a heavenly judge. And he knows that even if the people rule against him, God will reverse that ruling. Because God is the ultimate judge, isn't he? Doesn't matter what you guys think, God can reverse that ruling. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Here again, Jesus says, verily, verily. It's stressing the idea that what is about to follow is an absolute truth. Verily, verily. This is, listen up, this is absolutely true. And then he says that the person who keeps his word will never see death. That's quite a statement, isn't it? That's quite a statement. It's an offer to reset man's status back to where it was just prior to the fall. Mankind wasn't going to die before the fall, were they? And Jesus is offering, to, I can bring you right back to that. You know, sometimes uh, I got, well, I do installations of printers. That's what I'm going to be doing this week, installing a printer. And if I screw up in the program, some of these machines I got to set up, they, they got complex programming. And I can screw up. And I can go right back to factory defaults if I want to. That's what Jesus is offering. Hey, you screwed up. You screwed up really bad. And just before you start getting the cold sweats and start to panic, hey, why don't I just go back to factory default, go back to ground zero, and we'll start over. That's what Jesus is offering here. We're going to go right back to factory default. I made you in the factory. I created you. I put you in the garden. Everything was good until you screwed up. Let's go right back to ground zero. The fall brought death. Obeying the word of Christ will remove that penalty.
Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and thou sayest, If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead. Whom makest thou thyself? Well, the Jews here were only thinking about physical death. But what he was really talking about was spiritual death. See, they'd come to the conclusion that since Abraham's dead, and all the prophets are dead, then what Jesus is saying is baloney. Jesus has got to be either mad or demon-possessed. There are only two conclusions they can come to. And so they asked Jesus rhetorically, if, are you better than Abraham? Abraham's dead. Are you better than that? They don't even realize who they're talking to, you see. Jesus answered, If I honor myself... My honor is nothing. It's my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. See, if Jesus were simply looking for self-glorification, it wouldn't amount to a hill of beans. God the Father is the final vindicator. God the Father is the final vindicator. The Jews are claiming that they know God. But they don't show it in their actions at all, do they? And that's what Jesus is pointing out here. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I should be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. See, Jesus has an intimacy with the Father which mankind in general can never have. Jesus knows the Father. Knows and that word is gnosko again. Knows and has experienced Him firsthand. The world never can. I mean this unbelieving world. And Jesus proves that He truly knows God because He obeys God's word. So, Likewise, I'm jumping my own gun a little bit here, when you and I obey God's Word, we're demonstrating that we know God and have experienced Him too. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, Jesus has already made the case that these Jews were not Abraham's spiritual descendants. We've already talked about that. But there's no denying that they are his physical descendants. No question about that at all. And he says here that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. That is, the day of messianic deliverance promised in his ultimate seed. We've already talked about that, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. See, Abraham was given a son, one son, Isaac, through whom the true seed would one day come. We all know our Old Testament history. We know that. Now, I don't know how much of the messianic days God had revealed to Abraham. But from this verse, it's clear that some messianic salvation was revealed to him. 
And he rejoiced knowing about that. He knew that from him was going to come the Messiah one day. And he rejoiced. And he was expecting that. All right, God, that's what you say. I believe you. I'm kind of making Abraham seem like a simpleton, but that's how he seems to be. God said, okay, God, sure. And that's how you and I ought to be. God says it. Just take it. Just take, it doesn't matter how outlandish it is. Oh, my, one of my descendants is going to be the Messiah? Okay, God. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jews objected to anyone as young as Jesus could have ever seen Abraham. In their mind, it's impossible for Jesus and Abraham to have ever met. And of course, in an earthly way, that's true. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus now, saying this very simple thing, makes a great claim. He claims to be superior to all the Old Testament prophets, superior to Abraham. Abraham came into being. Abraham was born. He grew up in Ur of the Chaldees, lived there for a while, till got word from God, and God said, move out, go somewhere else. Abraham was born. He came into being. But Jesus has always been I am. He's talking to Jews here. These Jews know that when you say I am, that is God's name by which He chooses to reveal Himself. I am. I'm the self-existing one. I didn't come into being. I am. God can say that because God doesn't use time. You and I use time. We look at the time and I realize, okay, we're time to start wrapping it up. I can look at that. I'm wrapping it up right now. Don't worry about it. Uh, you and I are trapped in time, but God's not. God simply is. You know, that's the... I'm gonna, mind if I take a sidetrack? That's what's amazing to me about prayer. Prayer is the one thing you and I can do that completely transcends time. It transcends time. God is listening to all of our prayers outside of time. We could be praying for somebody in another time zone. We've got time zones around this world, too. I mean, it's hard to even understand. God doesn't care about time. Time doesn't matter to Him. He is. He's a self-existing one. He simply is. The Jews' response in the next verse shows that they understand what He's saying in exactly that way. We're going to get there in a minute. Jesus here is claiming to be equal with God. Before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming to be equal with God. He's not claiming to be an angel like the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. He's not a lesser God like the Mormons teach. He's not an alien being like Scientology teaches. Jesus is God, period. Thank you. But that didn't go over so very well. Let's look at verse 59 as we wrap up. Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Jesus makes a claim to be God. Didn't go over very well. And the Jews, 
are now left. They need to make a decision. They need to decide, is Jesus who he says that he is, or is he a blasphemer? Stoning is the normal punishment for this sort of blasphemy. And they're getting ready. They started gathering up stones. All right. You heard him. Israel's full of stones. Uh, there's no problem. That's probably why they use stoning so much for execution. There's stones all over the place. It's very easy. While they're looking for stones, Jesus slipped away. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. I'm not getting into that. I guess I'll just have to ask him when I see him. Hey, how did you, how did you manage that escape? I'd like to know. But coming around to the practical, we'll wrap this up here today. Jesus just made some pretty basic but pretty profound claims, didn't he? They're all pretty simple, but they're pretty profound. Mankind is a slave to sin, right? Mankind is a slave to sin. We can all agree on that. Mankind's sin drags him down deeper and deeper into itself, doesn't it? We all know that to be true in our own lives. And mankind's sin will eventually kill him. But Jesus offers freedom from that bondage, and it's the bondage Derek was talking about. Jesus offers freedom from that bondage, and He offers, on top of that, life through obedience to His Word. You'll have genuine life, eternal life, if you obey His Word. Do you know Jesus as your Savior this morning? Because if you don't, there's nothing I'd rather do than to tell you how you can. I know most of you, and I trust that you do. So let's take that gospel and share it with this world that does not know him and cannot know him. Will you do that with me this week? You mind if I pray? Lord, we thank you for the simple and profound truth of your word. It's so simple, any one of us can understand it. But it's so profound, we can study it for the rest of our lives. We thank you for bringing life and truth to us in a world where we don't know what the truth is and we're fed lies every day, you are truth. You're the one we can cling to. Strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit to obey your truth. Help us to share this gospel with this world around us. I don't think we have a lot of time left. It's in your name I pray. Amen.